forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported solely by its listeners. So if you would like to become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. There are bonus episodes there, like the one that I posted last week, which is just the story of the ghost that I've been living with for the past year in Kansas City. Although generally, the bonus episodes are a little bit more intellectual than that. There's also a blog, there's a tote bag, all of the usual things that you find now in late capitalism as people struggle to make a living. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. So I got married and one of the first things that he asked me after asking me to marry him was, is this going to hurt your brand? <laughs> and so what follows is a conversation with the man I married. The word husband is repulsive in the way that wife is slightly repulsive. So um, for now, until we figure out the language of the thing, we're going with the man I married. And it is kind of a continuation of these conversations that I've been having for the past year on the podcast. Um, Like the heterosexuality is a fucking nightmare podcast with Indiana Saracen. That one seems relevant. The From Woman to Wife episode with Suzanne Leonard, also very relevant. The Abolish Marriage, very surprisingly relevant in this particular situation, the episode with Jessica Stites. So it's a continuation of how do we organize love? How do we deal with the fact that suddenly someone becomes our life, the center of our existence? And how do we not lose our fucking minds? How do we not abandon our values, our political beliefs, our community, our friendships, and just devote ourselves to this one person? And also, how do you negotiate that space between you and the state when the state wants to get involved with your relationships? So this is just a conversation between two people. (laughs) And, you know, it's... I apologize in advance for any any of the couple shit that uh, that happens throughout. Um, but yeah, it's just a sort of very casual conversation between myself and the man I married about his history of performing masculinity, my history of trying to perform and failing to perform femininity and heterosexuality and how coupledom sort of try, tries to reinforce these very restrictive gender roles. So, please enjoy this conversation between myself and Nicholas Melo. As a as a young man, as a hot catch, as a man about town, setting up a Tinder ad for the first time, um, how was that process, and how did it how did it fail? Um, I did very poorly on Tinder. You know, um, I needed the expert advice of one of my roommates. Um, she has more understanding of the dynamics behind it. Uh, my my first Tinder profile was um, it was too much. You know, I was talking about the things that I cared like social justice yeah how dare you and community engagement practices um 
that was getting me nowhere, you know. And and then my roommate, uh, through her expert advice, um, she was able to streamline everything and, and um, make this very effective blurb. It said something like, um, "Arts administrator, coffee aficionado, Brazilian jiu-jitsu enthusiast," and then uh, the emoji of the Colombian flag. And um, it worked so well that uh, I met you, and we got married. I feel like the other ad would have would have worked better on me, to be honest. Um, so, so why why did you respond to this? So one? we would have been married within like the ten to eleven day range, rather than the fourteen day range. Had your Tinder profile been more robust in that in that particular way? But no, I'm interested in it because of the conversation. From the uh, from woman to wife podcast episode, and in her book she details like what works. You know, people teach classes and workshops. People, you can hire people to finesse your online dating ad for money in order to make it more effective, and it is essentially to strip it of all personality and and interest. Right. So instead of saying. I believe in social justice. It's like I like sushi. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So well, that's... I do have to say that the streamlined version was uh, uh, very successful. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, um, you know, I was um, <laughs> what you would consider not marriage material. I was an immigrant, pretty short. Uh, instead of riding a car, I'm riding a foldable bike. It's a pretty pricey foldable bike, but still a foldable bike. So, you know, it's not a Jaguar or a Mustang or something like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Like, what's 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 the kind of um, image that we're trying to sell through those things? Anyway, what, what made you go out on a date with me? <laughs> um, uh, you were you were cute and you were funny. That's it. Um, and you could see all of that through my Tinder profile, cute and funny. No, more in our uh, texting that day. Um, you know, um, you were cute, so I liked you, right? And then you were funny in the interactions, and so then I went on a date with you. But it was very much like um, if I had not been supported through my daily card tarot practice of pulling the fool which is to follow your impulse and do the stupid thing that you probably shouldn't do um i probably would not have gone on that date because i was only in town for two more days so if i liked you it would have been a disaster if i didn't like you it'd been a, like a boring night out so um so yeah so but i got the fool that day and i was like oh, okay fine fine fuck it why not i've been you know drinking at the green mill before that so yeah sure why not let's just we'll see we'll see how it goes and if it's bad then i go home i watch some tv ate some potato chips i drink some wine in bed and then i fall asleep and everything is back to being okay with the universe at that point any particular show or tv that movie that you would have seen in that scenario if you well it depends on how the evening goes so if it's really bad like if you had just been the worst human being alive, right? Then it would have been a full bottle of sparkling wine and Hedvig and the Angry Inch. If it hadn't been that bad, it would have just like caught up on 
like watch some Tom Hardy and Taboo or something. Like, you know, maybe if it was decent, but not, but didn't really go anywhere, some Keanu, like John Wick, (laughs) you know, it depends. It depends on, um, on the context. I do have to say about Tinder that, um, I mean, for the record, uh, my Tinder profile is defunct. It died. Um, And when you're going to close Tinder, you know, because they're so keen on marketing and they want to know why are you quitting Tinder? Um, It asks you like, what's the reason we have this? (laughs) And one of the options is I met someone. (laughs) So of course I clicked that one. Um, Yeah, Tinder. Yeah, but okay. So the thing that I was fascinated by with Tinder as a woman um, is that every man puts his height on the ad um, and almost every man has a car selfie. And I would usually ask and would normally be told that if you don't put your height on your Tinder ad, that women will ask. And then that will be the first thing that they ask. And then that will be the last time you hear from them if it's if it's not if it's not so good. So the sort of masculine performance of Tinder was depressing to me because I felt like we're all better than this, but it turns out we're not. It turns out we're not actually better than this and and women are terrible because um, they need a uh, height minimum, like a a fucking Disneyland ride. Well, I mean, I got lucky with you because I'm pretty short, right? Um, But yeah, I mean, I get get, um, this thing that you're saying about the perform masculinity, you know, like, which are the expectations of um, marriage material, you know? Um, Of course, I was very bad because immigrant kind of speaks English, but kind of doesn't. Um, Running a bike and all of those things. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty cool bike. It's a Brompton, but okay, enough, enough, enough about it. Um, But yeah, yeah, this, this thing of the performance community is like really super fucked up. Um, because it's like something that you learn by nature. It comes with your instinct. You know, it's like where you're raised, where you come from, the way that you see the interaction in between your parents and your sisters and the relationships and whatever. And then it's this idea of, uh, that you're the one that's supposed to be leading a successful life. And then your female counterpart is just like an attachment. Um, <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> no. Um so on a first date with somebody that you've met on Tinder, do you feel like you have to present yourself as marriage material, quote unquote? Yeah, totally. And what is that what does that entail? Uh they have my shit together that I can take selfish decisions that would look like it's consensual, but it's only what I want that I have a car, that I'm tall, so I would try to wear like my thickest shoes, Um, that I can dominate, which is fucked up enough. Yeah. Um, So we talked about in in our conversations over the last couple of weeks about this kind of um, pressure that you have felt in the past in order to perform masculinity in a in a very sort of traditional and specific sense. 
So when did you as an individual sort of begin to realize that this was a performance and when did those expectations become oppressive or difficult to you or when did they start when did they stop rewarding you more than they were sort of making your life difficult okay so um like the first thing to state is that i come from a household in which there were four women and my dad and myself you know and uh two of these women were my aunt and my mom which they have uh, been collateral damage of the guerrilla conflict in Colombia, you know? So they have had it pretty hard and they have had to, you know, put up with shit uh, to reinvent themselves and to to use a very phony statement to like raise from the ashes, you know? Um, and then my two sisters, which hadn't had it that easy either. Um, one of my sisters is now my brother, which it's a whole story in itself, but that's a different podcast. So you'll invite me to it, and I'll tell you the story. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I come from a from a household with, as I would say, like powerful women. You know, women that know the shit. You know, and then they have worked their asses off um, to overcome their shit. Um, but then at the same time, I see these women that are like magical and powerful and stuff like that, and they still circle around. A male figure which is my dad and um i mean i don't want to talk shit but my dad is a piece of shit um so it's like it's a very interesting feedback that you get as a kid you know when you're growing up you see that your household is being run by women i was raised by my aunt not because my mom didn't want it to but because my mom was working the unmentionables to make ends meet you know and also because my mom was coaching my dad like, don't be a fuck up. Don't waste what you're doing. You know, if you get your shit together, then you can also provide to the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was seeing all of this when I was a kid. Um, and it was like a very weird disconnect because still it was my dad who was like making the big decisions in the household. Um, so I would say that that experience, not in like a conscious level, but more in like an unconscious level, put this idea in me that, you know, like, these male behaviors should be the ones that inform your life, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you do them that way, then you're going to be a leader or whatever. And plus 18 and whatever. And I was able to understand with a more critical eye the dynamics in my house, not only in between my mom and my dad, but in between my dad and my sisters and my aunt and so on and so on. And... um from a very rational perspective, I was like, I don't want to be my, like my dad, you know? And I was like, this is a mantra that is going to be my mantra for the mm-hmm. rest of my life. I don't want to be my dad. I don't want to be my dad. I don't want to be my dad. But still, um, out of instinct, I was performing this idea of masculinity. Um, this is um, like an ad pun or whatever, but... Um, these past couple of, of weeks, I've been listening to uh, Idols, and they just released a new single, and they're releasing their new album, Joy as an Act of Resistance. And in their new single, they're talking about this idea of masculinity, you know, like these values of stand straight and be a man and be strong and don't cry. And and by nature, I was 
performing those things, you know, because I saw them from my dad and it was not a rational project. Um, in doing that, I was kind of repressing a lot of things out of myself, at the same time making a lot of my partners miserable. You know, because when you repress your feelings and then you perform this idea that you know everything and that um, you're the northern light in a relationship and that you have all the power and all the agency, it just creates this weird disconnect in what you're performing, what you're feeling, right? And that only manifests itself with in fucked up ways. You know, you make your partner miserable manipulation and anger and lies and cheating and so on and so on so i would say that was kind of uh, the first thing of course the first relationship and you don't absorb it second and so on and so on and then it reaches a point where um or <laughs> yeah i mean you have fucked up so much that something must be going wrong inside of yourself and that's kind of the first wake-up call of let's reevaluate this idea of the masculinity and that's when it becomes like a rational idea like a an evaluation of it but were those were those sort of performances being requested by the women in your life i mean it's one thing to say that you felt pressure because um of the way they were raised and um your the presence or the absence of your father and sort of accidentally following in his footsteps even if you had an idea of how fucked up it was but was one of the reasons why you kept up the performance because the women in your life wanted that from you. I would say that it's like half and half. Like looking back, I'd see women like my aunt and my mom and their strength and their resilience to be able to put up like very hardcore personal trauma and then still like be leaders and mentors and so on and so on. And then even though I acknowledge that power they were still attached to men, right? And this man was kind of leading the decision-making in the household. So on one half, it's like, yeah, it was kind of an unconscious thing. But then on the other hand, uh, yeah, I have to say that not that my partners were consciously, consciously thinking about, you know, like, this is what I want from you or whatever. But again, it's like this expectation of, don't cry, have your shit together. You know where this boat is leading to and I don't, so don't lose your shit. Um, this idea of being the person who provides and all that shit, you know, so it was like an implicit expectation, you know. Of course, it's a very tricky thing because I don't want to fall in the mistake of saying like, oh yeah, yeah, they were like, asking for it right you know? yeah, so sure. that's why i perform it because they were asking for it because it's it's very it, it's very unconscious it's like going back to the idea of my aunt and my mom and my dad it's very unconscious and you see those behaviors when you're a kid and then you just not consciously but you want to replicate them and so how do you begin to think about dismantling it how does it on a day-to-day -day practice how are you approaching this The first thing it's, I mean, you may, you turn 30, I turned 30 last year, um, and then you sit down and you make a survey of what has been your life so far, right? And then 
you see all of these mistakes, all of these fuck ups, and then you kind of set away down. And it's like, okay, maybe this narrative of the world is crazy and I'm right is not the right way of approaching it. Maybe there's some things to reevaluate, right? But that's like a very slow and nimble process, you know, that could be overlooked very easily. Um, but with that acknowledgement of how bad of a partner or not bad of a partner, but how I was defaulting to these behaviors that were so predominant in my dad and in, in my household and whatever, like how that is very fucked up. But then I also have to say that the biggest impulse or like the biggest push of not just taking this curiosity of how can we rethink masculinity, but how can we turn that into action? That push was because of knowing you, you know? And I remember our uh, our first date and our first engagements, you know, like it was very nice from the get-go being able to establish radical political visions and beliefs that we both had, mm -hmm. even if it would put us in a vulnerable position toward the other and then work it from there, right? And to me, it felt amazing to be able to be vulnerable and to be able to manifest all of the things, all of these things that were like accumulating in me, but I wasn't able to express openly in my previous relationships, only through manipulation and lies and shit like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, you, you talk about that you're supposed a man is supposed to present himself as um, um, marriage material on a first date, but a woman is also supposed to present herself as essentially like a simpleton, like um, just sort of as bland and blank as humanly possible, um, but also sexually available, but like not in a slutty way. So <laughs> it's a very fine line of the the feminine performance of a first date and. Um, I think on the first date, it just we just talked about how I'm an anarchist, and you know, um, generally that does not work out for anybody on a first date. Generally, the the guy's face goes blank, and you know, it's just like it's <laughs> uh, very interesting. And then I I have a thing, I have a thing after this. I forgot to tell you about it, I got, and I gotta go. <laughs> so okay, um, just out of your mind how many him how many men have you made run away from you by stating your political reasons from the get-go oh like uh do dozens yeah dozens uh well I, you know i'm in a position where now um they can google me and they can see it up front so i did that yeah so it's it's a it's a position of um you got great google pictures they often just yeah. like they just don't respond it doesn't even get to the first date thing like it is a thing of like as soon as they have my full name um they there's obviously a google thing that happens and then 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 that doesn't exist anymore so that's that's which is why on my tinder profile i just put a thing with my whole name on it and was like fuck it i don't care figure it out don't waste my time <laughs> so yeah that's that's how it works you have great uh when 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 i google search you and then uh, your images you have great pictures i mean you gotta admit that um great taste and so on but um going back to the initial question yeah um i can tell you how many women i have 
kept engaged in the conversation or whatever by doing the total opposite, you know? Um, instead of being frontal about positions and values and beliefs, you know, sugarcoating it. Because of course we go on Tinder dates or we meet uh, the lady in the bar or whatever. Um, and that's a very vulnerable position and we don't want to be rejected and we want to have a good time, right? So it's easier to sugarcoat whatever beliefs with a mountain of irrelevant facts, you know, like, oh, you like the Cubs? I like the Cubs as well. Although I hate the Cubs, I'm more of like a White Sox fan, but really I'm a Chicago Fire fan. Um, I might be digressing here, but I heard recently that um, the the Cubs owners want to create a soccer franchise here in Chicago, located up north. So, because right now the Chicago Fire the stadium and whatever is located in the suburbs, which is a predominantly Latino suburb. So it would be like, a, they want to create like a White Sox black team versus Cubs white team, but in soccer. So I will always be a Chicago Fire fan. But anyway, uh, I'm digressing there. Um, yeah, so it's 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 amazing how, um, how we say a bunch of lies that lead to 10 years on the road and then you get married and whatever and then 10 years afterwards you discover that oh yeah my wife is a trump supporter yeah we talked about that the first night of um the new york times article about i can't believe i my husband is a trump supporter which is it seems like the baseline information that you should have before you commit your life to somebody is whether or not they're a white nationalist like i feel like it should come up <laughs> somewhere along the way um, and uh, it's shocking that that people can be married to a white nationalist and just never and never know. But it's because of that, right? Yeah. Like, like we're so afraid of being rejected and to be vulnerable that we're just trying to hide your truth in the biggest amount of shit that we can do it, lies and manipulation and stuff like that. Yeah. Did you did you lie to me about anything on the first night? Uh, no. Which is why this is working so well. <laughs> <laughs> but you did tell me um, the first night that you were politically against marriage and now we're married. So I feel like that was. <laughs> so were you just saying that in order to get into my pants? No. Okay. But the rationale behind it is this. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so when I was back in Colombia, um, I was doing grassroots work, right? Um, I don't know if this is because of my mom and my aunt and their guerrilla past and whatever, um, but I was doing community engagement practices in rural areas in Colombia. Um, very grassroots and always complaining about institutions, you know, like the grant giving institutions and the government and all that shit. Um, but then I moved here to Chicago and got whatever education I got which I really appreciate because I great mentors, Rachel, Kate, you're great mentors. Um, but um, because of that, I ended up working on the institutional side of things, right? And I was able to see the complexities and the nuances of working as an institution with community and even the fucked up fact that even with goodwill, you can end up promoting structural violence and racist platforms, even if you have like a goodwill, you know, because it's so complicated being the institution. Um, but 
seeing those both opposing perspectives and being here in Chicago and seeing what other institutions are doing in terms of progressive leadership and how they're impacting communities and so on and so on, I do have a strong belief that from within you can create change, perhaps radical change. You know, that's, it's hard to compare community engaged our practices from institutions with the symbolical institution of marriage. You know, mm -hmm. it's an unfair comparison, but um, from the conversations that we've been having and how we're approaching this, to me, it's like an opportunity to be radical from within. But what about you? Um, what what made me marry you? Uh, no, I, before I answered that, I was just going to say about um, uh, the sort of being radical from within thing. Um, you know, when I, I have a newsletter yeah. and when I announced that uh, it wasn't really an announcement, it was just a statement of fact that I had gotten married and some people responded weirdly to that. But I got some very lovely emails um, and one of the emails was from a guy who told me that through the years my writing on why marriage should be abolished and uh, the, the sort of horror show of the heterosexual dynamic um, has made him a better partner to his wife. Um, and if I had gotten that message, you know, six months ago, I probably would have um, vomited uh, copiously. But uh, it it may I feel like now that I'm <laughs> I'm getting soft. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do feel like um, marriage is an inherently <clears throat> conservative act and that I'm, I think, more skeptical than you that it can be <clears throat> radical in any way. Um, and I still believe that marriage or any sort of romantic relationship that is treated as a contract between um, people and the state is problematic and probably shouldn't happen. Um, because, you know, you and I are in this stage of trying to convince the American government for various reasons that our relationship is legitimate. And on paper, our relationship does not look legitimate because um, we got married two weeks after we met. And also uh, I will be living half the time out of the country, won't, won't be sharing a space. So the list of things that the American government wants from us in order to prove the legitimacy of our relationship so that we can have the rights that are bestowed upon married couples, um, it's a little, it's a little alarming, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally jam with that. Um, it isn't an easy conversation to have, um, like how for the US government, how they think which are the signs of a true marriage or a true relationship are so tied to money, you know, like, have a lease together, have a conjoined bank account. Um, Own a car together. Uh, and put your wife inside of your benefits, which yeah. I'm, I'm very happy as of the last week, I'm gonna be having benefits. <laughs> but when, gonna, when we got married, there were no benefits. Um, 
so it's it's yeah it's very interesting how although you want to see this idea of the marriage and whatever in a radical way there's still that idea is still tied to pre-existing structures that reinforce structural violence you know towards single women single parents and things like that you know um doesn't defeat the purpose though at least not in my opinion but do you think it defeats the purpose on yours defeats the purpose no but it does make me sort of angry in a renewed sense um just the idea that if you don't fall in love or find somebody that you can fool into believing that you love them or whatever it is, whatever it is you're doing, um, then certain things are denied to you. And also just the methods of trying to convince the the government that this is legitimate and, and also having that weirdly reinforced within my social circle of certain friends also expressing skepticism because we're not going to be living together full time and and that we're we're not sort of existing in a traditional relationship which is surprising to me that anybody expected that expected that from me knowing who i am um as if the moment i got married i would become a wife um is it's it just sort of shows how conservative the the institution of marriage is where if I am out of the country half of the year, that's seen as being just sort of not only radical or unique or strange, but also weirdly dangerous. Like there's this this thing of like, well, what 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 will he be doing? Like, how do you this idea that I have to be around to police your dick all of the time to make sure that you don't, you know, get lonely um, is um, it's it's really pervasive in um, in the conversations I've been having with people. Yeah, I totally get you. I mean, and of course that there's two different conversations there, right? Like in terms of uh, what the government thinks and like that. Um, I mean, I just had the very sad and unfortunate experience of knowing that my best friend's wife uh, is being deported from the country because, you know, they're not fulfilling the government's requirements. Um, so I put things in perspective, right? Like mm. um, you get married out of rush and excitement and also because of a mutual understanding of what it should be and shouldn't be, you know, but then there's this like big brother on top of it that kind of determines what is legit and what isn't legit. Um, it's fucked up it's really fucked up um then on the other side like i understand the complications that you're saying and it's yeah i mean right now we were both logistically trying to pass those hurdles because there's a legal process happening um but at the same time that's that's the blessing of this thing that we have you know like um we're not getting married to neither one of us become the wife of the other or the assistant of the other um we got married rather to just be an expansion you know and to open new things and instead of constraining you and constraining me rather see how can we grow 
instead of growing together, which is that stupid fucking catchphrase that everybody uses when you're talking about marriage. Like, oh yeah, we're growing together so much and we're going fishing together. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, you don't even know how to fish. You don't fish anything. Um, but instead of that, it's rather like individual growth just next to each other in a constant conversation, in a constant negotiation. And to me, and going back a little bit about this idea of... Uh, the perform masculinity and all of those things, uh, this is what drew me so much to us, to this thing that we don't know how does it look like, but that we're building and molding every day that it goes by. So why, why did you ask me to marry you? Um, first, I was coming from uh, an experience of hurting my previous partners. I already talked a little bit about that. And this was like a summary that was in my head, like what's going wrong? What are you doing wrong? And so on and so on. And then in our interactions, first in Chicago, then in Kansas, then in Chicago, whatever. Um, I was just able to stop doing that performance, you know, and just to show myself as strong as I am when I'm strong, and as vulnerable as I am when I'm vulnerable, and as weak as I am when I'm weak, and I'm as strong as whatever when I'm strong and whatever. And from there, instead of having like a condescending interaction from one to the other, like, oh, poor you, or poor me, or whatever like that, establish a conversation and see how those feelings look like and what can we negotiate around those things you know that's something that i hadn't felt in my life before um and it what was what kind of drew me to just be this impulsive thing of course it's complicated because up until this point i had been extremely good at performing myself in a way that i'm fulfilling the expectations around me at the expense of my own happiness or peace or whatever, right? And this is kind of the opposite side of the coin, right? This is exactly how I want a lifelong partnership to feel like, right? But at the expense of those questions that you're saying, you know, being my friends in my circles and whatever, there's a lot of, you know, um, discrepancy and kind of questions like what's going on and so on and so on so it's been a process of what is expected versus how am i feeling how fulfilled i feel when i'm with you and when i'm just being happy strong vulnerable with you so um well now i feel weird asking this question but um <laughs> please ask <laughs> um no so we talked about sort of you know the in the romantic realm of the performance of masculinity but that um also extends into the sexual realm um so what sort of performances there have you felt hindered by and oppressed by and and so on and so forth uh, in the sexual realm yes I got a couple of stories for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I mean, the basic, the first one, 
like the big kahuna, the white elephant that is always in the room, is that um, the way that women understand male sexuality and the way that men have no clue about female sexuality, like the paradigm on top of it is that um, if the man comes, it's a, it's a successful interaction. And if that doesn't happen, there's something wrong, right? So I've had a lot of situations where um, for X and Y, I'm more drawn to putting pressure on my, uh, putting pleasure on my partner rather than me just ejaculating. Um, and that has been interpreted in a way of like, what's going on? Why don't you come? Why haven't you come? Um, that's like the classic example of it. Um, but then also beyond that, like there's this idea that men's pleasure is always on top of female pleasure, you know, and then also male pleasure is completely misinformed by a lot of external impulses, you know, like, um, what should uh, your ideal broad look like? Or which are the practices that you consume through porn or all of these things, you know? So there's like this idea that the man should joke and dominate and humiliate and all those things, which not necessarily are ways of getting pleasure out of it, but you perform them, you know, because you have consumed them. It's like the same thing with my parents, like, I don't understand it. I don't agree with it. My mom should get a divorce, but she's not willing to. But still, it's ingrained in my subconscious, and then I perform it. It's the same thing with these kind of things. Um, and that also has the other side of it, that there's like a lack of understanding of what female pleasure is, you know? And it's not like a conscious decision of the female being like, yeah, choke me, dominate me, and whatever, but it's implicit and it's unconscious and it's already there. And then since the trigger works both for the man and the woman, then you end up doing it, even though you don't understand it and you don't know how fucked it is. There's, I was talking uh, with a friend of mine about this passage in uh, a, a Dura book about, uh, her, you know, the the man asking her, what can I do for you in bed? And her response being just, fuck me like you fuck everybody else. Like, just fuck. don't make me take responsibility <laughs> for my own desire, right? Like, um, which is, I think, a lot of it um, with, how a woman is expected to be in bed, which is just compliant and um, submissive and letting the man direct the thing, even if it's awful, even if it's, you know, there's a Kathy Acker line of, of um, you know, um, a woman, a woman can have sex um, while wanting to scream, but the complication is that you have to hide that scream. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, that's that's that's. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now that you mentioned that, uh, I just uh, it just reminded me of um, this week. I was just you know losing my time and my life in Twitter, and I saw this uh, tweet by a by a influencer in Colombia, whatever his name is. Um, 
um, and the tweet basically said, um, it doesn't matter how attractive the sexual worker is, paying for sex is a failure of one owns masculinity. And I was thinking a lot about that, you know, because that's, that's a pretty fucked up thing. Um, because kind of strengthens and reiterates the belief that we as men, we're entitled to female sexual interaction, right? Um, that, that if it's done in a transactional way, which might be fair, like hey, this amount of money for this service that is done outside of it, um, it's wrong kind of reiterates this idea of that no matter why or no matter how I'm entitled to a female's body. So even if that means going onto Tinder, uh, customizing your profile, going on a date, saying a bunch of lies, and then getting sex through those lies. Or if it doesn't matter if making a Tinder profile, going on a date, and getting drunk as fuck to the point that you force yourself onto getting what you want, right? Um, of course, this a different conversation because, yeah, uh, sexual work has been dominated by structures that exploit women and benefit men, but that doesn't mean that in the abstract we cannot get more creative in the way that we think sexual interaction, you know, way beyond that this idea that men are entitled to female bodies. But it's also the, the sort of idea that part of the obligation of masculinity is to seduce, um, which is in a way like a sort of problematic, um, even the idea of seduction of being like, um, um, as a form of manipulation of trying to convince somebody that they want something that they don't want, right? Of, of being um, manipulative, even if it's in a kind of nice way to, to have sex with you or to go on a date with you or whatever. Um, but the idea of a kind of, um, that if somebody can't make himself attractive to women, that they are failing in their gender in, in this sort of in this baseline biological reality of, of who they are um that's a little horrifying because obviously there's you know there's a wide um segment of the population and if you sort of like look at the numbers of, of or the demographics of who is not marrying um, which is a growing part of the population um, in the Western world, it's absolutely political because people who can't marry or don't marry are primarily black women, um, disabled people, um, um, older people, the poor, all these people have- Immigrants. Low, yeah, immigrants. They all have lower success rates in romantic relationships which sort of points to the fact that this is not about love, this is about something else, this is about status, this is about um, money and power. Um, and so to argue or to even sort of suggest that somebody who can't um, compete, and even the word compete makes me wanna vomit, um, <laughs> in the romantic realm is, is, fa is a failure is really 
is really horrifying. Um, yeah. <laughs> you have nothing to say? Nothing to say on that? Well, I mean, pfft. I mean, I'm the unmarable stereotype, you know, like short immigrant in whatever, but I don't think, I don't think this goes to the point. It does go to the point. The short thing never, you know, the height thing I never understood about women, the sort of the expectation that your partner will be taller than you. I never really understood that expectation of women. It seems so obviously objectionable. Yeah, especially because you look so good on heels, you know. Well, that's the thing. Is like that's that was always the thing. Is women? Well, I can't wear heels around him. It's like yeah, you can. You just you'll just be taller than him by two more inches. Who gives a fuck? And you look great on heels. So that's <laughs> a really. I mean, I just feel the need to reiterate that point twice. <laughs> um. But there is something about the sort of um, heterosexual romantic dynamic um, that reinforces a lot of gender essentialism. Um, and, you know, watching it happen to my friends in a very, and my sister and, you know, other people, um, in a very unconscious way, people who thought they had sort of control over who they were and what was expected of them and 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 it had a, a feminist viewpoint in order to interrogate um all these different dynamics and then as soon as they couple up just sort of immediately default into you know whether that be you know the sort of example that I'm thinking of right now is totally unfair, but um, but yeah, like a like a, a woman friend I know who's very independent and, and a feminist and a, and a prominent writer and very interesting and and traveled and all this other stuff. Um, you know, her boyfriend has decided that he doesn't like it when she leaves the country without him, and so now she even though she gets invited to multiple countries to give talks and so on and would be good for her career she turns a lot of it down if he can't if he can't travel with her because he has essentially forbidden her from doing so and that's the most horrifying thing i can think of in the whole world is somebody saying no you have to stay here with me uh you're not allowed to get on a plane i can't imagine anything worse <laughs> Yeah, that, that reminds me of um, one of the first cultural shocks that I had when I moved to the U.S. Um, I mean, here, I mean, I'm sorry, but you guys have like this weird fucked up idea of what uh, a wedding should look like. Um, is this, it's like this very painful process where everybody hates each other, but they have to dress the same way and you spend a lot of money and no one's happy but then it's a very perform performative thing um and that put that was like many conversations that i had but mostly with one of my previous partners like all of her friends they were getting married and there was this social pressure of oh, i'm not getting married there everybody's getting married and marriage should look like this right and it was such a cultural shock because i compared it to uh my best friend's uh, marriage and my best friend's wedding. Um, so he lives in New York um, 
and uh, most of us were like just spread all over the world and with different economical capacities, you know. So there's a bunch of our group of friends that they live in Bogota and some other in Europe, some other in different cities in the US and whatever. Um, and uh, his wedding was like this completely unpretentious thing in a park, whatever. And uh, the beauty of it was just like, it doesn't matter if you're wearing a suit or just a cardigan or whatever, it's just this beauty of celebrating people getting together and whatever. So it was completely outside of this framework of this American expectation of what a marriage or whatever should look like. Um, and I think a lot about this uh, cultural shock and cultural difference when um, when I think about us, like you and me, um, whenever, I mean, I, I, of course, as you have, I've gotten a lot of questions about like, what, what what's going on? Why, why did you get married? And so on and so on. And like the most cohesive line of, words in English that I've found out to kind of explain what has been going on in between you and me is that um, this is not, the beauty of this is not you and I constraining each other, but rather being an expansion of the other. Um, and that goes a lot of, to this idea of what marriage should look like, you know, and, and, and what you were saying about, oh, so now do we have power over you and not power, over you and whatever and should I determine what goes in between your life and my life and whatever um that's that's something that I have very present in in this thing that you and I were building you know like that was kind of um I hate this I hate the word values because it's such a Paolo Coelho kind of word but whatever um one of the principal things that you and I talked and that we defined was going to be the core thing of this is that it was always going to be a relationship of equals mm -hmm. that there wasn't going to be the sacrifices and then even though how complicated the situation it is you being in Berlin in Baltimore whatever when I'm whatever I am um that we're gonna take that complexity and discuss it and negotiate it and then take it from there, you know? Um, and that's, that's the core of it, the beauty of it to some extent. The American marriage isn't really a marriage, it's about the wedding, right? It's about the big party in which you get to be the center of attention and everybody sort of, uh, tells you how beautiful you are and how special you are, but it's only about the bride. Nobody gives a shit about the groom. So it's really just a party that a lady wants to have with a nice, which I think you should just like buy a nice dress and have a party and then ask everybody to say nice things about you because you have low self-esteem and just say it out loud. Um, <laughs> and then save everybody all the trouble and also the person that you're marrying that maybe you're just marrying because finally you can have somebody to have the excuse to have the party with. But, um, but you know, we got married at the courthouse, so. <laughs> but okay, the courthouse was like very anticlimactic and whatever, but what I really digged about it mm -hmm. was the post. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we went to this, um, can can I do, uh, can I name names? In yeah, of course, like Google. they're not paying us, so it's fine. Okay, great. Um, the beauty of, of, of 
our marriages <laughs> that um went to the courthouse and whatever and then we went to this amazing 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 taco place uh don chema mm -hmm. in california blue yeah. line chicago illinois um, yeah. it was great we got a uh, free tequila shots for us yep some margaritas and margaritas with a corona yeah yeah it? like yeah. the corona kind of goes down with the tequila in itself yeah. beautiful these platters full of tacos and that's yeah, that was that was nice um and then ski ball oh yeah ski which ball. you beat me at which i still can't believe <laughs> um anyway sorry continue your story i'm a natural i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah yeah i, I it's again like going back to this idea of the performative whatever you know like it's i mean the wedding is is peak performative femininity because it's um you get to be a princess and uh, you get to be <laughs> totally narcissistic and mean to everybody but they still have to pay attention to you and do what you say like it's it's very um it's a very disturbing ritual in our in our culture of the idea that this is a day that you plan for and you imagine and you fantasize um, since childhood. Um, and then everybody in your adult life, even though now you're 30 years old, has to participate in this fantasy that you've been carrying around since you were six years old and you were wearing like a, like a um, pillowcase on your head as a veil. Um, it's, it's, you know, I never, we never really had that, in our in our family or or anything i i never sort of had a fantasy of a wedding day or anything or becoming a mother or any any of the sort of big feminine markers of success like it, it just was not part of my reality and I would like to say it was because we were raised in a sort of progressive way but both my sisters had these very sort of traditional mildly horrifying um <laughs> i love you both of you um weddings um and uh and so it wasn't it wasn't that it was just somehow i i escaped the pressure of it but um yeah that's all no i totally get you um um my mom for being the strong woman and the progressive force that she has been uh she was always obsessed to see uh her kids you know do the thing and thankfully for me um my sister maria uh she married uh, this amazing guy from spain from barcelona and they my mom knew my mom knew that i wasn't going to give her this pleasure you know so when my sister got married, they were like, they threw the house out of the window, you know, with that marriage. And then people traveled from Spain to Bogota and it was like this huge thing and whatever. Mm -hmm. It was like, it brought peace to my mom. You know, she was like, okay, I did it. Now, Nicolas, you can do whatever you want. Like even get married to this woman that you just met <laughs> two weeks ago. Go for it. And she's been super supportive of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you do you. Go boy. I have one question though. Okay. Why did you marry me? <laughs> um, it was a very um, instinctive response. Um, in order to sort of like understand the weird context of it, you know, we'd only known each other for 10 days before you proposed. Um, 
maybe less, maybe a little less than that. And the day before we'd had a conversation about me moving to Berlin and there was a conversation about maybe this is it, you know, um, maybe we don't see each other ever again after this. Um, and there was some sort of coming to terms with that uh, for me of, okay, so is it worth going through this experience anyway, even if there's no future and sort of coming up with the answer of, yeah, okay, I, I'll do it. Um, I'm a, always a little bit overly optimistic about my ability to um, withstand emotional suffering, but um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but um, but there, you know, I did have that feeling. But then, so when you asked, it didn't come with any sort of big explanation of what that life was going to look like, which I appreciated because it would have, I think, felt like a lie anyway. Um, but uh, it was just a question. Um, and it just felt natural to say yes to it. And then so I've been sort of, you know, trying to intellectually catch up with my feelings um, since that moment when I said yes. Um, and I'm not sure that I'm entirely there. But part of it was feeling like you actually respected me and it wasn't just a a um a front for manipulation and control because certainly um i've been in relationships in the past where like yeah 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 i get that you have your needs and they're cute and all but i'm definitely going to punish you for them when you ask to be able to meet them which has been a a huge pattern in my life of um in my romantic life. Um, but also just a sense of um, a shared set of values, which is important to me and a shared sense of a political response to the world, which is important to me because anytime that I've compromised on that, I've regretted it. Um, and um, yeah, and I'm in love with you. So that's, that's my reasoning. I adore you, Jessica Crispin. <laughs> Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.